was the last time you stopped and evaluated your life? I mean, really took the time to decide what the most important things are. The sad truth is, most of us don't do that. We just live our lives day after day. But the truth is, life is a series of choices. And the things that we choose are the things that are most important to us. If we don't evaluate our lives and decide and clarify what's most important, we'll end up wasting it. The Bible says that it is the intelligent man who aims at wise actions, but the fool starts off in many directions. <laughs> if that's our gauge of how we're going to evaluate our lives, the sad truth is many of us are going to fall into the category as fools. But none of us wants to live foolish lives. We want to be wise. Therefore, we have to consider the words of Christ, who said that the most important things in life are to love God and to love others. In evaluating your priorities and clarifying what the most important thing is in life, we have to use that as our measuring stick. But we have to choose. God doesn't decide for us that we're going to have good priorities. In fact, Job said that we can choose what sounds to listen to and what taste we want in food, and we should choose what is right. But first of all, we must define what is good. What is good in your family? What's good in your personal life? What's good at work? That is how you clarify what is most important. Because look, when you consider your life, the question of whether you're gonna waste it or use it, it all comes down to whether you've clarified what's most important. Because when it's all said and done, your life, just a dash between two dates. A dash between two dates, huh? It's like an amazing thing to consider. And it is fascinating to me how we come from so many different backgrounds, so many different ages. We have all these different life experiences. We're all at different places on our dash between two dates and how seldom we really do stop and consider our lives. We stop hardly ever and consider what we're investing our lives in. You know, the, uh, the things that we decide, the choices we make, all kind of come down to these just now, these moment choices. And these choices determine what we live for. And ultimately, they determine what we die for. What we invest our life in is really what we're dying for, because we're all in that process. And, and so the things we live for really are our core values. They kind of determine to what we're going to do and why we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. They determine what we've decided, whether it's accurate or not, gives us significance and gives us acceptance and how we get love and what makes us feel worthwhile and, and what really gives us a purpose in life. And even if we, we, we consciously think about these things or not, the truth is where we invest our lives, the decisions we make are determining ultimately what we're willing to die for. These things, these core values, I call them our treasures. But these are our, our beliefs that really drive us. And, and, you know, honestly, you can sit and talk with anybody for 10 or 15 minutes and you can find out what they treasure. It doesn't take long. Find out, do you treasure your kids, your marriage, your family? Do you treasure your house? Do you treasure your education, your travels, your leisure? Do you treasure your body, how you look? Do you treasure, as a politician, politics? Do you treasure religion? If you're involved in religion, do you treasure, as a patriot, your country? 
What do you treasure? What drives you? You see, we all have things. And what we treasure is really what we're living for. So over the next several weeks, I'm going to invite you to join me on a treasure hunt. And I'm going to encourage you to kind of ask God to, to clarify what your treasures are, what you're investing in. And we're going to look at, like, as a church, what we treasure, okay? And, and you know, you are the church. And so if you look at, our, at, at the things that we treasure as a church, and it's not the same as what you treasure, you're going to be frustrated by every decision that's made here. And on the other side of the coin... If it's the same values that you treasure, you're going to be the implementer and the initiator of these decisions that are made because it becomes just your life lived out because you are the church. And so it's really important for us to stop and evaluate what do we treasure, what do we live for, what drives us. And we're going to look at that as a church. Now, Pat and Bill have graciously kind of agreed to, to give up one of their weeks of preaching over the next several weeks and we kind of moved the schedule around a little bit and God just kind of compelled me to go through this this series and but we're not changing our preaching team or our schedules As a matter of fact this fall we're going to start a series on the life of Paul and which will be really awesome and we're going to continue on with the team we're we're just blessed I'm totally blessed by those guys so it's been a lot of fun through that but but just now let's pray Father, we come to you, and uh, we come just seeking you. We come desperate for you. And honestly, Father, we come with all kinds of things racing through our minds. And so even now, we stop and we pause and we want to exalt you. And I pray even now, Father, that you would reveal to each person here, every single one of us, what we treasure, what we think is most important, what we're living our lives for. And God, I pray that you would be exalted, that you would just open up our hearts to hear from you. And may you be glorified in our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your treasure? I gave you a place to write it down in your notes if you want. What are you living for? What's your passion? What's your, what's your purpose? For some, that immediately comes to mind. Others maybe have to spend some time considering it. But I challenge you to consider it. A treasure is, is something that's valuable to us. It's something that we store up for future use. It's something that we consider precious. And when you really stop and evaluate your treasures, what you've decided is they're worth it. Okay? You've decided that it's worth investing your life in to have it. And these things we treasure are the kind of things that we think if we have it, our life's going to be better. And if we lose it, our life's going to be worse. So these treasures become very, very important to us. One author says, you're enslaved by what your soul treasures. You see, it's what we give this supreme value to. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And yet we all have to really admit freely, there's a lot of really cool stuff on earth. All right, there's a lot of great treasures to pursue and to accumulate. There's a lot of great fun on earth. There's a lot of incredible activities on earth. There's all kinds of stuff on this earth that's really attractive. And it's so easy for us to, to see that our lives are captured by these things. And all of a sudden they suck us up and they're, and they're beautiful and they're illustrious, but they're, they're kind of fleeting. And yet we, we just pursue them and we ache for them. And I propose to you really something that's, that's radical, but if you stop and think about it, if we treasure God, we can have everything else. If we treasure God, we can have everything else. Tozer calls this the blessedness of possessing nothing. If we treasure God, we can have everything else. But the other side of that coin is the only way not to treasure the things of the world is to make God our treasure. 
The only way not to treasure the things of the world is to make God our treasure, okay? And, and, and as I was really praying through this, the, the first really preeminent value we have is, is we want to have that relationship with God as the primary thing in our lives. And so no matter what the world screams at us, as we come together as a body, as we meet each other in the streets, let's have the value, the passion, the treasure to be our relationship with God is preeminent. Now I see three main stumbling blocks to keeping us back from this. And, and they're kind of categories and you can kind of fit into those different stumbling blocks and you'll think about it for yourselves. But three main, and I call them our American idols. Okay? And I saw the other day where they're having issues on American Idol with the, the staff. But you know, there's no real issues for these things with us because we all have them. And these categories, the first one, the first American Idol that we really treasure in place of God is our good works. Our good works, okay? Our good performance. You know, we all want to be good people. We all have a strong work ethic in our country. We want to be good. And we easily treasure our good works over our relationship with God. If you have your Bibles, flip open to chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. And uh, Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's writing in this epistle. And, and if you pick up chapter 3, you realize he's kind of at this place where he's kind of talking about really the goals of life. And he's, he's boiling down what life is all about. And, and, and he says in Philippians chapter 3 about verse 4, the second half of verse 4, we'll pick it up. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, okay, I have more than anyone else. Then he goes on and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I am found blameless. But whatever things are gained to me, these things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. He's basically saying, look, I've spent my life trying to do good things, trying to please God, trying to be righteous before God. I've really spent my life pursuing keeping the law of our Bible. The Old Testament is what he had, right? I've tried to keep his laws. I've tried to satisfy him. I've tried to earn this, his favor. And, and you think you've tried? <laughs> you think you want to be a good guy or a good gal? Paul's like, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was what was laid out from Father Abraham, right? Ishmael was in the 13th year. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. My faith didn't come later in life. I was born into this thing the right way. On the eighth day, I was circumcised. I, I not only was circumcised on the eighth day, but I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. Now, of all the 12 tribes, only Benjamin was born in the promised land, the second son of Rachel. And, and from Benjamin came the first king of Israel, Saul, which is probably who Paul was named after. Benjamin had the place of honor in the military battles. Benjamin was this incredible, uh, faithful tribe. Along with Judah, they made up the southern kingdom, which remained faithful to to God longer than the northern kingdom. He's like, I'm from Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? There's Jews spread all over the world and they've taken on the culture of the other countries and their languages and their customs, but not me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm trained under the rabbi Gamaliel. I am the real thing. I'm a Pharisee, <coughs> Paul says. And a Pharisee was, they were separatists. They were legalists, okay? And we have that as kind of a negative term, but what they did is they pulled back 
from the sinful people of this world to protect themselves because they were going to honor God. They were zealous. And there was only about 6,000 Pharisees, Josephus tells us, about the time of Herod. So there wasn't that many of them. Most of them were not priests. Most of them were not Levites. Most of these guys were middle-class business guys, okay? They just had a passion for God. And they had like 613 Old Testament laws that they had made into rules that they could keep. Basically what they did is they kind of put a fence up so they wouldn't fall. And if right here was breaking the law, they'd put a fence up back here so they wouldn't even get close to stumbling over the cliff, okay? And if you were to bring it into modern day, you know, most of these laws revolved around the Sabbath because to them that was the, the oldest and dearest commandment because it goes back to creation. And if you were to bring it into modern day, you know, these rules around the Sabbath involved you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath, you can't kindle, you can't spark on the Sabbath, okay? So bring it into modern days, basically what they would do is like if you, uh, you had to decide if carrying or wearing something was what you're doing. For example, if you were a woman and you had, were wearing a, um, a hairpiece, okay? And I asked the first, and you guys, what is that? What are they called? I mean, I have all these girls, but it's like a hair um, clip or something. I mean, <laughs> they were all over our floor forever at our house. And I trip on them and make the girls try and pick them up or whatever. But those things, you know, you wear in your hair, right? And um, so if, if you were wearing that on the Sabbath, that was okay. But if it was carrying a burden, that wasn't okay. So they would put kind of a, a, a block around their, their, their courtyard and say, as long as you stayed within here, it was okay. If you went out into the streets, then it became a burden and you were carrying it. Even a wig, okay? So you kind of had to sort through it. If you were to bring it into like the modern-day refrigerator, if you were to open a refrigerator on the Sabbath... That violated the Sabbath for the simple reason that you were kindling because the light came on, right? So what they would do is unhook the light the day before so then you could open it safely. Beyond that, okay, that makes sense, right? Beyond that, if you opened the door and warm air went in, that was a spark because the compressor kicked in before it was supposed to. So you get around that by putting a timer on your compressor right? Or you could just open the door when, when the compressor was running. So you can kind of imagine how we'd have to do it at football season or something. You'd have to have like a guy stationed by the fridge and just kind of listen for the compressor to go on so you can get your stuff out, right? Because you didn't want to violate the Sabbath. And these things are, 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 we think are crazy in a sense, but what they were doing is they were trying to avoid any potential sin. This was what Paul lived his life this way. And he was zealous. That was the highest religious virtue because it combines love and hate. He loved the things of God. He hated those things that weren't. He's persecuting the church, right? And he went through and he said, these things were, that I thought were gain to me, that word is a, is, a, is, a, is a business term for profit, okay? Not a profit to me. These things were loss for the sake of Christ. I thought these things were all on my profit scale toward God and they were all business loss. And he goes on in verse 8 and he says, More than that, I count all these things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and that I might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. He's basically saying, 
all these things that I spent my life for trying to be a good guy, trying to be a righteous guy before God, they're rubbish. That word is skubala, is the, the Greek word. It's dung. It's manure. It's garbage. It's dung compared to knowing Christ. Now, catch this, okay? Paul's not talking about a drug-infected past. He's not talking about struggling as an alcoholic. He's not talking about his adulterous affairs. He's not talking about his greed or his pornography he struggles with. He's not talking about all these sins in his past like that. You know what he's talking about? Good works. He's talking about his religious life. He's talking about, you know what I did? I studied the Bible. I was zealous to study the Bible, if you put it into our terms. He studied the Old Testament, and I tried to keep all the rules. And I thought I was pursuing God, and I thought that was profitable, and it was all dung. It was all rubbish. His idol was his good works. And when Paul looked to Christ, all of his righteousness that he thought was nothing compared to knowing Christ. And that word is not an intellectual word for knowing Christ. It's like this intimate, the most intimate relationship there is. It's like this intimate personal knowledge with Christ. You see, this life is not about, you know, self-satisfaction and self-actualization and self-discovery and, and self-sufficiency and, and know thyself. This world and this life is about knowing Christ. Just now, treasure our relationship with God through Christ, okay? Now catch this, when Paul stopped pursuing his good works, pursuing the law to try and earn God's favor, did he quit doing good works? No. As a matter of fact, when Paul quit trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law, God used him to write the whole New Testament, almost a whole pile of the New Testament. See what happened? When he started pursuing Christ, good works followed. When he pursued good works, it was dung. It was rubbish. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, but it's an idol, an American idol that keeps us back from really pursuing God. We think we need to pursue good performance and good works. If we pursue Jesus Christ, if we know him intimately, the good works will follow. <laughs> the first really idol is we treasure good works. The second real American idol we have, it's pretty obvious, is we treasure money, whatever you want to call it, assets, riches, the stuff of this world. And to the Pharisees, of course, to Paul's clan, uh, material possessions meant divine blessing. They used to have a, a saying that whom the Lord loves, he makes rich. So to them, if you were pursuing riches, you were pursuing God because that was a sign of God's blessing. Of course, Jesus addressed this back in Matthew chapter 6. If you go back to Matthew 6, it's like one of the classic favorite sections of Scripture. And remember, he's talking about the law here, and he's kind of laying out this standard that says how good you have to be and how perfect you have to be and how holy you have to be to live up to God's standards. And he's basically saying, look, you can't do it. That's why you need me. That's why you need a Savior. And he's, he's laying out this standard. And in verse 19 of chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's a command, 
a command to lay up treasures in heaven, not to lay up treasures on earth. Just like it's a command not to commit adultery. It's a command to forgive, he lays out here. It's a command not to steal. You know the commandments, right? It doesn't make sense to us, but why these commandments? Why these rules? Why this perfect standard? But ultimately, when it's all stripped away, the reason he gives us the standard is because if we don't follow it, it hurts us. And we struggle with this because we think, why could all the treasures of this world hurt me? It's good stuff. Why does it hurt me? God made all these delightful things in our world. They're incredible. But they're meant to be external. God was meant to be our treasure. Tozer says, within us is to be God outside are the thousands of gifts that he has given. And yet sin comes along and the words that come into our vocabulary is that's mine. I want that for mine. I want my. And everything becomes mine and mine. It comes in and it takes the place of God in our lives. And pretty soon we're subtly investing our lives in this stuff. we got this limited time on earth and then we're investing it and accumulating what's mine. This stuff, this gold, this, this possessions of this world. It's futile. Now savings are not bad, okay? But they don't have ultimate worth. They don't have ultimate worth. When you walk through the cemetery and you see all the graves and all the people who are buried there, where they lived on earth, how much money they had, how much they accumulated, matters nothing to God or to them. It matters to their kids and their family. But what they gave, what they shared, are the things that have value. And we treasure this stuff. We treasure this money. For several reasons. I, mean, I just give you three main reasons. I think we treasure money for significance. Because in this world, those who have money, those who have assets, it determines where you live. It determines what you do for fun. It determines your leisure. It determines your friends. It determines the, the things that you can do on this earth. So it gives us significance on this earth. We treasure money to make it mine for power. Those who have assets, those who have resources, have power over those who don't in this world. We treasure money for security. We think that if we can just have more money, more assets, more uh, things of this world, we're going to be secure. But it's an illusion. It's an illusion because you know what? There's no guarantee that we don't drive out the parking lot and it's over. And if our security or our significance or our power is based on the stuff of this world, it's fleeting and it's gone. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he really digs into this in, in a lot of different ways. And, and so if you want an interesting read to continue the, the process, I challenge you with that. But for me, this has been a horrible process, okay? And, uh, and what's been horrible is, is I realized uh, painfully God has made it aware. It hasn't been soft. Um, for me, that that money was my security, okay? And that, that I was really counting on that money for my security. It's not so much for significance or power. That that's, wasn't really my thing. But for me, it was security. And it's still security. And, and, and so to give up my income and my house and my retirement and my stuff for Christ meant giving up my security. Okay? And I, di and I did it. I thought, well, this is cool. I did it. But what I realized, I didn't really do it. What I realized is I was still holding on to my stuff for security and still struggle with that, trying to, to somehow believe that God's going to be my security in this world, not the stuff of this world. 
And yet God, I know, is our provider. He provides when we're 20, 30, 40, 50. I trust he'll provide 60, 70, 80, however long on this earth. And yet there's this constant struggle to think, no, 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 no. It's not God that's the provider. It's me that's the provider. And our world screams it at us. Our world says, look, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to retire not in dignity. Okay, you ever heard that? You're going to retire, not in dignity. So basically what that's saying is if you don't accumulate the assets of the world, you do not have dignity. So the only people that have dignity in this world are those with money. Right? It's a subtle thing. We never stop and think about it. But that's what we're inundated with in our society. And I'm not saying don't save. I'm not saying don't do good works. I'm saying it's not a worthwhile treasure. It's not a worthwhile treasure. I can't make myself secure. God is my security. I can't make myself significant. That comes through Christ. I can't give myself power. He has the power. And the struggle for us with money, for all of us really, is we don't see it. See, we just don't see it. We don't think we covet. Virtually none of us in here thinks we're greedy. We just don't see it. Especially in America, okay? Uh, it's what our world is based on, our economy is based on, everything's based on it. And, you know, we feel bad, we feel convicted when, 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 we're, when we're caught in most sins. And we know in our heart of hearts, so much as we try and minimize it, we know in our hearts of hearts that that really is sin. And so if you catch someone and we're in sin and I stole something and you, you catch me stealing it, I know it's wrong. You catch me in this, this anger that's not from God, I know it's wrong. You catch me being jealous, I know it's wrong. If you catch someone with bitterness, you know it's wrong. If you catch me in a drunken state, I know it's wrong. Okay, but we just know those things are wrong. But, but we don't see greed. See, we don't see coveting. It hides itself behind the American dream. Don't ask, don't tell is the way we deal with money here. And that's the power of greed. It's subtle. It's hidden. We can't see it. That's why I believe right here, Jesus talked about the challenge of the eye, the challenge of watching carefully. And he went on right in verse 23 when he's talking about money and riches and the things of this world and anxiety, and he says, the lamp of the, the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. The lamp is that word for like a lantern that you take camping that only shines right in front of your feet. You know, you can kind of see where to go. And that's the idea. See, if the eye is clear, that word for clear is healthy. That word for clear is single. That word for clear also really means generous. If your eye is singly focused on God, your whole body's full of light. But guess what? If the eye is bad, your whole body's full of darkness. That word for bad is worthless. Okay? If your eye is focused on all the stuff that doesn't have ultimate worth, your whole body is filled with darkness. It's therefore that the light that is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? See what he's saying? We can't see this greed. It's hidden. It's subtle. Look carefully. Think carefully. Watch carefully. You want to know how to know? You want to know how we realize our greed? There's several different ways. One, we realize our greed not when we're chasing the stuff, but when we chase God. When we chase God, that's when I realize that my security and my future is based on how much stuff I had, not when I was chasing it, not when I was chasing the 401k, not when I was chasing my income and my savings. No, 
You start chasing God, then you realize what really is controlling you, what really is a treasure. You want to know if, if, if money's a treasure in your life? How do you look at rich people? You see, none of us in here, well, very few, probably think we're rich, okay? It's just not a term we think of ourselves as rich, and yet as Americans, we're all rich. Compared to the world, we're all rich, okay? But we don't think of ourselves rich because someone always has more than us, right? And so how do you look at those who have more than you of the things of the world? Do you look at them with envy? Do you look at them coveting what they have? Do you try and get what they got? Do you want what they got? Okay, do you think, well, I'm skeptic of how they got it. You see, that's what happens when we're looking at worthless things. But when our eye is clear, when we're looking at people who have more than us, through the Christ's eyes, we look at them with love. And there's not envy. There's not coveting. Instead, there's like, how can I serve you? How can I encourage you? I know it's tough to have the things of this world because we chase them so hard, and when we get them, we try and hold on so hard. And it's so easy to tear us away from God. So how can I come along and serve you and encourage you and bless you? We look at those who have less than the poor in this world, and we don't think, oh, geez, I'm smarter than them. I've worked harder than them. They're probably lazy. They probably didn't do what they were supposed to do. That's why they're poor. No. We quit looking at the things that are worthless and we look at through Christ's eyes and we say, how can I serve you? How can I give to you? How can I be generous with what you have? We change our focus to Christ and our focus changes to generosity. It changes to giving. We want to be radical givers. When we consider God, we realize kind of how satisfied we are with what he's provided for us and we realize how little we really desire to give. Sorry, that's what I've had to deal with for months, okay? <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a challenge for us to stop and think about. D.L. Moody tells a story about uh, a group of Im immigrants coming to this country. They're blown off course to the classic deserted isle, right? And they're surrounded by the ocean. There's no one, no one around them. There's no way to escape, but they had a good stock of food. And, uh, and you know, they, they had uh, an island that, that was safe, they had seeds, they had good soil, they had great uh, climate for growing. And they're stuck there. And the ocean surrounds them, there's nowhere to go. And, and so what they decide to do is before they start anything, they decide to send a search party out and check out this island. So what do they find? A gold mine. And so immediately, everyone in the party goes to the gold mine, they start racking up gold, they start digging up this gold's incredible, okay? And they're realizing it, but all of a sudden, spring has passed, and they haven't cleared a field, they haven't planted a grain of seed summer comes and you know what their wealth is racking up their wealth is increasing like crazy but but their stock of food is growing small in the fall they they have heaps of gold but they find it's virtually worthless because the famine is staring them in the face so what do they do they go clear the forest they go till the soil they go plant the seeds and they're going to try and produce this food now but it's too late the winter comes and the seeds rot in the ground and here they are, dying in the midst of their treasures. See, this earth is like that little island. Eternity is this ocean around us, and this is where we're cast. In America, 2012, right now, this is where we are. And we have this, this living seed, but we have incredible mines of gold all around us. And we can spend the summer and the spring and, 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 and just kind of trying to get all this stuff and pretty soon the winter overtakes us. And we have the bread of life and we're invest, investing our lives in things which are ultimately worthless. Here we are starving and anxious and worried and fearful 
and we have the bread of life with us. <clears throat> you can tell when an object has really become your idol because when it's threatened, we get scared. We get worried. We get really anxious. And Jesus lays out the cure there for our anxiety, for our worry. He says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to the one and you will despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And he goes on and he talks about the cure for anxiety, which is incredible. I would encourage you to take and just read and read and read this Matthew chapter 6 here. But he goes on in verse 33. He says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You want to know how not to worry about money? Don't treasure earthly treasure. That's verse 19 says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. You want to know how to not worry about money, not to worry about stuff of this world? Don't treasure earthly treasure. And the only way to do that is to treasure Christ. The only way to do that is to realize that our security and our significance comes from knowing God. That's what Paul learned. He learned to treasure Christ, well-fed or hungry. Just now, treasure our relationship with God. Now catch this, there's nothing wrong with good works. We treasure Christ, we will produce good works. There's nothing wrong with having stuff and giving stuff. There's nothing wrong with the things of this world. We treasure Christ, we can freely take or leave the things of this world. The things of this world easily, though, take our focus off of God. They're attractive to us and it's subtle. And so as I close, I, I really want to hit the third American Idol here. And uh, just stick with me because it's the third American idol that we really uh, struggle with. And it's, it's our human relationships take precedence over our relationship with God. You know, relationships become the most important thing in life. And the ultimate relationship is with God. And just like it's much easier to see our good works than it is to see God work. It's much easier to see the treasures of earth than it is to see the treasures in heaven. It's much easier to see, obviously, the relationships in our lives with each other over our relationship with God. And all of a sudden, those relationships with each other take precedence over our relationship with God and we become people pleader, pleasers. People pleasers, right? And all these people in our lives become our idols. And all of a sudden, we want to get married and then we're worried about our spouse and we're worried about our future spouse and we're worried about our kids. And all of a sudden, all of our time and all of our life revolves around them. And then we're worried about our bosses and our co-workers and our friends. Okay, we're racking up all these friends. We're racking up all this stuff on this earth. And those relationships take preeminence over God. And it's backwards. We think, if I can just fix this relationship in my life, then I'll stick God in here and I'll be fine. It's backwards, just like everything else. It's upside down. If we have our treasure of God within us, he will allow us to love those in our lives and the other relationships will be fine. If we pursue God, we'll be fine with our works. If we pursue God, we'll be fine with our finances. If we pursue God as our treasure, we'll be fine with our relationships. We can possess nothing but have everything. It's upside down. You see, the kingdom of God is built on poverty, not on possessions. It's not built on my good works. It's not built on how much stuff I have. It's not built on my marriage or my friends or my kids. It's not built on that. Instead, the doorway to God begins with my futility, my realizing I can't do this. I need you, God. You want contentment? Have no treasure but God. Be at his disposal, trusting that he's... Put you where he wants you with what he wants you to have 
for his season and for his glory. Now, what I've wrestled with as we wrap up here and just stick with me for a couple minutes here is, is I've wrestled with like, why? <laughs> why, God? You know, we're not supposed to ask God why questions. We're supposed to ask what questions, right? So, of course, I wrestled with that too. But I think, you know, God, why should our relationship with you be a core value? Why should that be our treasure? Why should that be what's most important to us? And I thought, you know, obvious reasons. God's the creator. It's all his, right? And, and you know, he's God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He's above me. He can turn me into an ash in a second. He's God. He's almighty, right? We, we know that ultimately every single one of us is going to bow our knee to Jesus Christ in heaven, under, on the earth, under the earth. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This God is above us, okay? He is holy and righteous and pure. And that's the truth. And I thought, well, is that why he should be our treasure? But what's fascinating about our God is he doesn't ever enforce that on this earth. He doesn't say, you will submit to me or else. I'm going to turn you into an ash, right? He doesn't say, you will make me your treasure on earth or else. I'm going to take everything away from you. Instead, he leaves us perfectly free to choose amongst all these American idols. He gives us the choice. And, and he allows us to choose what we want. He doesn't make us make him his treasure. Why should God be our treasure? Because you're his treasure. That's why. We are his treasure. Now think about this. Jesus Christ had everything and has everything. It's all his. Every relationship, every possession, every ounce of glory, all power, all might, it's all his. It's all God's. And any one of us, we could throw together all things we've measly accumulated on this earth, and it's nothing compared to what God has. Nothing, not even significant, okay? God has everything. And so what did Jesus Christ do with his treasure? He gave it all away, and he gave his life for you. He gave it to what was most valuable to him, you. You're God's treasure. And you see, as we remember this, we're free from everything else. As we remember this, we can, we can live each moment. We can live with every circumstance, every good work or frustration we have. We can live with much stuff or little stuff and all these relationships. And, and we can walk knowing our Father just loves us because we're his treasure. He gave everything. He gave his life for us. Father, I just pray for each person here. I just pray, God, that, that we would recognize that we have the ultimate treasure within us, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing power of God may not come from ourselves, but from you. And God, I pray for each of us. If you pointed out idols, American idols, things that we're chasing in our life that have the ultimate place, God, I pray for each one of us to look to the cross, to look to you. 
and to see the only one who is worthy to be preeminent, to be worthy to have the glory, to be worthy to have the power. Amen.